Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to Lost in Science for another week. This is 30 minutes of some of the best, some of the most interesting science that you're going to hear all week. Uh, My name is Claire and with me, as per usual, I have Stu and I have Chris. Hello there. Ahoy there. Ahoy. Howdy. Howdy. Uh, Chris, what have you brought in the world of science for this week's episode? Um, And thank you, Claire, for not overselling uh, the best science that you're going to (laughs) hear. Well, I I mean, it's just standard, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I'm doing a story about it. Again, I mean, I tend to go around in circles. It's something actually we have touched on before. The notion of gene therapy for various diseases It's one of those things that sounds like it has a lot of promise for dealing with dealing with uh you know illnesses that have a genetic component obviously mm-hmm. hence the gene therapy but it's still proving i suppose quite challenging and there's been some recent developments in, with the condition of duchenne muscular dystrophy right. uh, some treatments for that that i thought i'd have a bit of a look at it's a really good illustration i guess of the potential but also the challenges with trying to make something like gene therapy a reality so yeah it's a, a bit of a dive into what's involved in actually getting this stuff to work as opposed to just the hypothetical why don't we fix the genes simple sounding solution it's sort of gone quiet all quiet on the gene um, therapy front for a while so i'm looking forward to hearing um a bit of that update and Stu, what do you have for us this week well i've got some uh high flying science or probably more accurately some low swooping science (laughs) to talk about oh yeah i'm uh i'm talking about birds if you didn't pick that up from my i mean i mean i hoped i hoped but (laughs) i'm very glad for the confirmation um, I, you know, we again, we have talked a little bit about how intelligent birds are on the show from time to time, and I thought I was going to, I'm just going to take a little look at probably one of the more maligned birds and, and how intelligent they might be, talking about the the humble seagull, or not so humble, really, <laughs> they're, that, they don't, they're, not, they're not backward in coming forward, are they, the gulls? Um <laughs> But they do get it. They do get a bad rap, I think. And uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk a little bit about some research into gulls and and how smart they might actually be. Brilliant, cool. brilliant. Well, um, silver gulls love them or hate them. They do know what they want, and what they want are chips. Um, <laughs> you know, so they're not too far from my own heart. But why do they want chips is the oh. real question, Claire. And this is what we're going to delve into. Wasn't there a movie about that, What a Gull Wants? <laughs> oh, goodness. Without any further ado, I think we should just get on with the show.
Okay, yes, you're listening to Lost in Science, and I am talking about gene therapy treatments, particularly for a disease called Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Now, as I said, there's been some developments on this recently. Uh, There is a particular treatment that is essentially up for approval in the United States by their Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, and it's... Uh, they were initially planning to reject it, but the interest in it was so high that they've held a public hearing that there's been a narrow vote by some independent advisors to um, to recommend that they approve it. Um, as we're talking, I don't know if it has been formally approved or not, but it just kind of shows that, yeah, they clearly, they were not able to make a definitive decision. And there is a lot of controversy around whether this, the benefits outweigh the the risks for this particular treatment so i thought i'd have a bit of a look at what the treatment is and uh yeah and how it works and what the challenges are um so yeah muscular dystrophy um is essentially the type of uh disorder affects the nerves and muscles and essentially it affects the muscle strength and and size of muscles and duchenne muscular dystrophy is its most common type that is it is a genetic disorder it affects about one in 3500 3500 boys notably it's very rare in girls because it is um it's linked to the x chromosome uh and it's a recessive uh condition so it's basically yeah boys have two copies of the gene yeah girls girls have one copy of thing yeah girls Girls have two copies have two copies so yeah, it is um it is a progressive disease or a degenerative disease if you want to look at it that way. Um so it affects all the muscles in the body, including the muscles that hold the spine straight and also the muscles that are needed for breathing. Children who have this condition generally they lose the ability to walk by about twelve years of age, um and essentially are using a wheelchair after that age. And um thank you for the Royal Children's Hospital fact sheet for supplying me with all this information. So yeah, that is that's what it is, and as I said, it is a genetic condition um, linked to the X chromosome, and it's a it's a mutation in a, a, a gene for a protein called dystrophin, and dystrophin is a protein that's in the muscle, the the cell membranes in muscle fibers, and essentially it acts. It's been described as a bit like a shock absorber type of thing. It helps to essentially strengthen the muscles and helps them. I guess, um, resist injury. So without this dystrophin protein, then, yeah, the muscles get progressively damaged through use and hence why they, they wear away and why you get this, um, yeah, this degeneration or the, the muscular dystrophy, as the name suggests. So the fact that it is just kind of one gene uh, for one protein um, makes it an would sound like it makes an excellent target for a gene therapy to attack this particular uh, problem. Yeah, it seems pretty straightforward. If you've got a single, I mean, a single protein is coded for usually by a single gene. So yeah, absolutely. Surely you could just you just fix the gene, you fix the protein, problem yeah. solved, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there were a few practical issues with this, and the first one is, um, I guess, not so much to regard to the to the treatment, but to the actual problem itself. Um, the the gene that codes for dystrophin, the DMD gene, um, happens to be the largest known human gene. Um, it has two point four megabases, and it covers um, 
0.08% of the entire human genome. So it is wow. huge. 0.08%. That is, that is a massive... Yeah. I yeah. mean, when you, when you think about how big the human genome is, that is... That's quite large. Yeah, yeah. So delivering such a large gene clearly is going to be an issue. Um, and is that, it, this is the only thing it does as well. Is that is that it doesn't um, have any other function? As far as I know, yeah. I mean, it's quite an important function, as we've seen. Um, yeah, like obviously lacking, it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there is fortunately there is a way around that particular problem. There was um, there was a case. There was an older man who had um, half the protein missing, roughly half the protein missing, um, and he had mild muscular dystrophy. So they did some experiments basically and figured that you could have a miniature version of this protein dystrophin that essentially would help alleviate the most of the problem. So it doesn't, it's not a full cure, I guess you could say, because mm. um, it's not the full protein, but it's, um, it gets you over the, 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 the main harm of it. And this um, miniature dystrophin or micro dystrophin, as it's often called, is small enough to pack into a virus. Um, they use things called adeno-associated viruses. And yeah, and they give patients this virus containing this gene from microdystrophin. Uh, and they give a huge amount. So it's typically like 10 to the, 14, 10 to the power of 14 of these viruses um, per kilogram of body weight. So it's a large amount of virus because essentially you're wanting to get all the muscle cells, I suppose, mm. to have this particular gene in them. So and it does seem to have it does provide a lot of benefit having this um yeah this microdystrophin genes in the body, but it's again it's not a full cure I and mean, there's some problems that come along with it. Um, one of the problems is that it's not a permanent permanent fix because what you're doing is you're introducing essentially a viral genome into the cells. It's not doesn't become part of the cells. Uh, nucleus or the cell's genome so and particularly when new muscle cells are created from stem cells then they don't generally have this um, this virus uh, DNA in them and so essentially the cells that you've injected are replaced um, so uh, over time as the as the cells regenerate so it's not a it's not a permanent thing in that, and it's also very then very difficult to give the treatment again because the fact that it's delivered by a virus, the mm. body builds up immunity to the virus, and so next time you give the injection, the body fights the infection. Right. So it's not a long term solution. No, not at all a long term solution. It's kind of a one off thing, really, mm. in that sense. I guess not only does the body generally pe- people build uh, immunity to this particular virus, but it can actually go wrong in the process of delivering things by the viruses. Um, there have been patients who, are, you know, who've been testing this, involved in the test for this um, this treatment, who have died, believed to be from the the effects of the the virus that they're given. Um, so it's been suspected or implicated in at least eleven deaths um, of for gene therapy. Um, I think maybe only two of those for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, but right. still, it's um, it shows there's actual it's a risk there, particularly when um, if you're trying to maybe get around this issue of then the body getting immunity. Sometimes it's been proposed that they could give say immune suppressing drugs, mm-hmm. but then you had the risk of the infection causing yeah. a problem. Is it more to do with the viral vector being the delivery mechanism, or is there is there some inherent problem with the 
with the gene therapy. No, it seems to be the virus itself is the problem. It attacks. Okay. It attacks. Yeah, other parts of the um of the the body and the heart and that and that sort of thing. So yeah, it's um yeah it, it's it's the virus itself that is the problem. Um, so I'll get into some some ideas for getting around that issue as well. But look, it is like I said, it's looking like it could still be approved in the United States. This particular um, this particular therapy. I had a look and see what the situation is, is in Australia. The um, the company who's developed it is called Sepetra, and they have a collaboration with the pharmaceutical company Roche for uh, I guess bringing this to Australia. That was announced a couple of years ago. Um, I can't yet find that they submitted anything for approval here in Australia, but presumably that will happen after all the data has gone through in the States. We often follow those sort of things. I can't also find much indication whether the results have been formally published in journals or what the situation is with that. Um, it's also interesting that other um, firms are looking at this. Pfizer apparently is working on a treatment that sounds very similar to Sepetra's. Um, they are actually running a trial with um, their first sites are set up in Australia. So there actually are Australian patients who are uh, trialing this gene therapy for the, the Pfizer version of it. So it is, even though it's not approved for use here, it is, I guess, being used in, at least in experimental stages. But as I said, it's not it's not a long-term issue. There are multiple problems with this. Um, there are some plans, like I said, for getting around it. Um, one is the idea that you could use uh, the the gene editing tool CRISPR, which I know we've talked a lot about on this on this show. Um, CRISPR is a it's a technique derived from certain bacteria that allow you to snip out bits of genes and replace them with um, bits of DNA and replace them with um, the DNA you want. And the idea here would be that you don't necessarily have to bring in the, I guess, the full DMD gene for dystrophin. You basically just fix the broken bit for the mutation. So you're only bringing in a small amount of of say um rna or dna to, to do the fixing uh, you don't have to bring in the whole enormous gene um so and if, for that you could potentially use a similar techniques that have been used for the covid vaccines which delivered uh the M messenger rna through lipid bubbles rather than through uh, lipid nanoparticles essentially rather than through a, a viral vector so it's a bit safer in that sense right yeah um, so yeah, that's that's a possibility um, because it kind of a it sounds like a, a neater approach in some ways, but um, there are still immune issues there um, because this because CRISPR comes from um, a bacterial source, then the it's essentially is still foreign DNA that you're introducing or foreign uh, genes that you're introducing into the cells, and then the cells themselves can then be targeted by the immune system because suddenly they look like they're infected, which they are infected, essentially. Um, and this problem has been seen in the laboratory and some of the um, the animals that they've been testing this on. Um, so there are some practical issues, even with that kind of neater sounding approach. So like I said, I want to tell this story because I think it is a good example of how something that sounds really, really smart and a fairly simple fix of something has a lot of practical issues. I guess the the good news here, though, is that we are actually seeing these therapies being used, potentially being approved, even though they have these shortcomings. Um, there are these practical issues, and I guess what we can hope is that the solutions we found for the practical problems, and that you know, in the near future, we'll be seeing these therapies become a reality for multiple genetic disorders. The process is already in place; it's just a matter of time until the difficulties are ironed out. 
I think we're lost. We're not lost. Not even any short-range radio signals yet? Except for a single, very powerful radio emission. Of course, a transmitter of that sort isn't exactly standard equipment. The science and technology must be absolutely mind-boggling. Of course, that's uh, it's mostly on the theoretical side. What's so far? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. How smart are birds? Pretty smart. Ah, uh, it depends which bird, surely. I mean, bird brain is a misnomer, right? Well, you know, you, you, people might get called a bird brain if they do something less than intelligent, but that might not be entirely fair to our feathered friends. And, uh, you know, after all, we've got to remember that birds were once the apex predators in South America. So the potential for them to evolve into something to be afraid of is not entirely beyond them. Oh, hello, um, New ev- Zealand. Evolutionary bottlenecks aside, we, yeah. we should be nice to the birds, I think. And I've also yeah. seen the Alfred Hitchcock movie. <laughs> now, the average sparrow may not seem very bright, and we do know that some birds can be very intelligent. Uh, the corvids, like crows and ravens, uh, and, of course, parrots have shown behaviour that is incredibly intelligent by human standards. But, you know, that's probably why it impresses us so much, because we're the ones setting the standards, really. But the the humble seagull may not seem like a candidate to be included in ornithological intelligence testing. Uh, but, again, that might just be... Because of our cultural conditioning, I'm looking at you, Pixar, with your very unflattering portrait of seagulls in Finding Nemo, um, making them look a bit less than intelligent. But to be fair, look, other creatures get a rough trot in animated anthropomorphic or fantasy films too. So seagulls are not alone in that respect. But seagulls are very successful creatures. They're found all over the world. Mostly mm. near the sea, obviously. It's not just a clever name. But different, uh, different species surely are over, over the world. That's right. There are, there are over 50 species of gulls in the family Laridae. They were all placed at one point in the genus Laris until genetic testing showed that that was not quite accurate and they've been split up again. So there's a number of uh, genera in the family Laridae. But yeah, you're right, there are there are 50 species, but they have speciated along coastlines and spread out all around the world. Now, the smallest gull is the little gull. Oh, again. Oh, well. A, again with name, the clever names. It? Yeah. Uh, 120 grams. That's a oh, tiny little, tiny little gull. That's quite And cute. the largest is <gasps> the great black-backed gull, which is around 1.75 kilograms and around 75 centimetres long. And if that one comes for your chips, you <sighs> abandon chip, I think. And, oh, yeah, you, you, you would, wouldn't you? Where would Australia's silver gulls and, um, you know, also maybe the Pacific gulls, which you see a lot in the um, south of Australia as well, where do, where do they sit along the sort of scale? Uh, I mean, the silver gulls are probably right in the middle, I think, and the Pacific gulls are a bit larger, so... But not, they're nothing like 1.75 kilos. Um, not that I've picked one up. I wouldn't get that close, I think, to a Pacific <laughs> gull, especially not with a handful of chips anyway. 
Now, most gulls are what is known as generalist feeders or possibly more unkindly garbage guts. They will eat just about anything. Um, In the wild, that's usually fish, crustaceans, insects, earthworms, eggs, reptiles, amphibians, rodents, other birds, carrion, offal, seeds, fruit, and more recently, rubbish. Right. Um, That's the thing, because they're associated with with rubbish tips, aren't they? As well as cricket grounds. Of course. Yeah, I remember gulls at the tip. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And this is all to say they're not specialised or in any way precious about what they eat. And this may be one of the reasons they are so successful around the world, that, that they eat what is available to them. And this might not seem like a sign of intelligence, but the ability to adapt to local food sources in new territory is a hallmark of another apparently intelligent species, Homo sapiens, who also spread through every continent on the planet. And who also loved chips. (laughs) Loved them so much they bought the company or something. Now, one of the common tests used for animal intelligence is a simple task of pulling a string to open a box containing a reward. Um, And many bird species do similar things in the environment to access rubbish bins and stuff like that. Anyway, uh, the corvids have been shown to be very adept at this. And some gulls from a Canadian colony were tested using a transparent box containing a piece of sausage. Why they chose a piece of sausage, anyone's guess, but it's obviously very tempting for an omnivore. It's got who knows what in it, which is what they eat. So probably makes sense. Now, 75% of the gulls attempted to open the box. And of those, 25% successfully got the food out, which might not seem like a lot, but it's only 1% less than common ravens. Wow. And, you know, they were, they were applauded for their intelligence when they sat the test, but the, the seagulls didn't get the, uh, didn't get the accolades, unfortunately. Um, but seagulls are very adaptable, and throughout the 20th century, they found enough habitat and food sources to move away from the seed site, the seaside that they're most often associated with, and into urban areas, which also grew over the last hundred or so years. Um, and seagulls might be described as opportunistic feeders, meaning they'll try pretty much any food source they find, uh, which also has another less flattering name, kleptoparasitism, which which basically means thieving parasites. And uh, this might be partly due to a study from 2019 which showed they are aware of human attention. <gasps> so they are more likely to steal food that's near people when the people are not looking at the gulls. Oh. So they kind of watch... Watch your face and see when you're looking at them, and when you look away, they'll steal your food. Um, so they are little thieving parasites, basically. <laughs> kleptoparasitism. <laughs> yeah, kleptoparasitism. That is, that is my um, number one word for this week. Thank you, Stu. Yeah, I'm going to use that. <laughs> word of the week. Um, but if they're willing to try anything, how do they know what is worth trying and what is just rubbish? And again, it may have a lot to do with their awareness of our behaviour. So in a recent study published in Biology Letters, goals were observed by researchers in their reaction to 
carefully fixed in place colourful food packages, specifically chip packets, <laughs> specifically packets of cheese and onion flavoured chips or crisps, I should say, because it's a UK study. Uh, these these packets were blue and salt and vinegar crisps in a green packet. So they basically stuck them to the ground and withdrew to a safe distance uh, on Brighton Beach to see what the gulls would do. And they looked into the camera to watch what they would do and a few curious birds would come over and investigate the packets, possibly because they were brightly coloured and it was just some novel thing, so they came in and had a look at what it was. But when the researchers themselves were scoffing the same kind of chips out of a packet, almost half the birds there hopped over to check out the packets and 40% of the birds had a peck at the contents. Was this um, was this intentional that the researchers got the chips so they just got hungry during the research? Was that like part of the protocol? <laughs> It, it it was it was actually designed this okay. way. It wasn't just that they were down at Brighton Beach eating a packet of crisps, which <sighs> does sound like a lovely way to spend the day filming seagulls. No, it was it was a designed experiment. So. Um, but of the forty percent that had a peck of the contents, ninety five percent of the birds who had a look looked in packets the same colour as the scientists were eating at the time. Ah. So basically, if they were eating from a blue packet, 95% of the birds would go for a blue packet. If they were eating from the green packet, 95% of the birds went for a green packet, which is a pretty good indication. They're aware of human eating habits and are more than willing to try some of what we're having. But it did make me wonder... It kind of seems like it would be pretty easy to trick these birds into eating things if you wanted them to. And I was wondering, is that where we got the word gullible? That's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for joining us. Lost in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation at the studios of 3CR and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you would like to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at lostinsight@gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR or try us on Twitter where we are Lost in Science 1. 
or just tune in again next week wherever you listen to us when Stu, Claire and Chris get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.